Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today we have an interview with director Tim Hunter. Mr. Hunter has directed such movies as Tex, Sylvester, and River's Edge. River's Edge will be shown on Saturday, January 14th, 2017 at 2 p.m. at the main library on 615 Church Street in the auditorium. More later, on to the interview. Richard Linklater, who directed Boyhood, Slacker, and Dazed and Confused, had says this about River's Edge. It's one of the great teen movies. It's a different kind of movie. It's more depressed. It feels more end-of-the-worldly. Even the drugs and alcohol of the movie aren't of the fun sort. It's a bummer subject, and it's right there from the beginning. Do you agree with what Mr. Linklater says? Uh, well, that sounds like a good... Uh appraisal of it, at least from his uh, point of view, God bless him. He's uh, such a good director. He's always supported the picture, which has been great. Sure. I mean, uh, I don't know that it's uh, all that uh, apocalyptic, but it certainly speaks to a generation that, you know, doesn't, doesn't have the education, doesn't have the cultural values, doesn't have a frame of reference to really see beyond the uh, moment or deal with complex uh, moral questions. So to that extent, Linklater's assessment is, is, is perfectly uh, valid, if, uh, if maybe a little uh, uh, all-encompassing. I went to see River's Edge the year it was released in 86. It came to one theater in Nashville, but when I watched it, I felt like I was a plague had entered this suburban yeah. community, and I was just wondering how did you, cinematographer Frederick Elms, production designer John Muto, and yourself achieved this very unique look. We shot the film in uh, Tahunga, which is a suburb of, of uh, Los Angeles, up in the hills above uh, Burbank and Glendale, in the foothills. And it was a, a, a old community that was settled at the turn of the last century as a oasis largely for tuberculosis patients. And the style of architecture tended toward uh, river rock houses and uh, some mission-style houses. Now, of course, it's a smog pit, and nobody would go anywhere near it to cure themselves of tuberculosis or anything else. But the point I'm making is that it had a kind of land that time forgot quality that I thought would help the picture. I didn't want to set the picture in a modern tract home bedroom suburb like the one that we had written about, uh, that Charlie Haas and I had written about in Over the Edge, the film that we wrote that preceded my directing River's Edge. And Spielberg also had done a lot of, uh, a number of films by that time in those kind of cookie-cutter modern suburban communities. And I wanted the film to have more of a timeless feeling. We went up there and uh, found these old river rock houses, several of which were actually scheduled for demolition, and we got to them just in time. And I think that partly uh, gave the film the, uh, the, the kind of overgrown texture that it has, the other thing is that the river itself was shot up in Sacramento on the northeast fork of the American River. And to make what for us was a fairly long story uh, short, it was a long story because 
there had been a flood and it was a question whether or not we could even go up there and shoot at that location. But at the last minute, we made it up there and the the uh, floodwaters had just receded and it left our river locations in a state of wildness that hadn't been there before when we initially scouted those locations a couple of months before. The log, for example, that Samson and Feck sit on by the river that had just washed up, you know. So we took advantage of the uh, of the increased uh, texture of all of these locations, and perhaps that uh, helped uh, give it a a, a feeling that uh, has kept the film from dating in a way that maybe some other films, uh, you know, haven't uh, had the had the benefit of. Fred Elms of uh, incredibly good cameraman. He had worked with David Lynch and uh, John Cassavetes, and uh, I knew him from being around that network of people in the early days of the American Film Institute, the AFI. Because we didn't have much money for the film, Fred and I would rehearse the key scenes with some of the actors on weekends, and we figured out pretty much exactly what we wanted the coverage to be. And Fred even got a little sore when I wanted to uh, add extra shots when we were actually shooting the thing. But there was a discipline to it, you know, based on the the budget limitations. You know, Fred knew what what we wanted to do. And, and John Muto, who uh, took to the really took to the picture and Loved the Tahunga locations, uh, was responsible for the interior of Feck's house, the red walls, stuff like that. You know, also made a a terrific contribution to the thing. John used to joke because after River's Edge, he was the production designer of Home Alone. I used to see him at screenings and stuff, and he would say, how can I complain? I'm, I'm the guy who designed River's Edge and Home Alone. So... Uh, he did it. So we all worked together to, you know, to give it a look that we thought would just be a little different from the usual uh, cookie-cutter suburban teen picture look. You co-wrote Over the Edge and directed Tex and Sylvester and, of course, uh, River's Edge. And these movies are youth pictures, and in each movie there's a lack or no parental guidance in the movies. What's your attraction to that theme of Teens Adrift? That's a question that I haven't heard for a while. I had a very intense and very rewarding, uh, how shall I say, teenagerhood. Or uh, it was, uh, I went to a kind of arty high school in New York City where everybody was quite precocious and relationships were very intense and we all loved our art and culture and music and such. So it was a very intense period in my life, and I decided that I really wanted to try to hang on over the rest of my life to the kind of feeling of strong loyalty that I felt toward my friends and not lose the intensity of those relationships. So I think that when it comes to teenage films, I've always naturally advocated for people in that age group as having their own lives and very strong passions and very intense loyalties, even if they don't have the maturity and the information, you know, to make perfect decisions all the time. 
And I, I think in general, whether it's a a kid or an adult, a good guy or a bad guy, I like to advocate for all my characters because uh, everybody has their own dreams. Nobody thinks of themselves as a villain or a supporting player. Everybody has their own dreams and wishes and goals and aspirations and feelings. And I just feel that uh, it's my job to uh, to try to get to the heart of that and advocate for uh, for those characters. I know this quite answers your your question. Um, uh, you know, Over the Edge was based on research of actual incidents in a bedroom suburb of San Francisco, a, a new town that had been master-planned by developers, which looked like it would be a suburban oasis, but in which nobody had come up with anything for the kids to do, so the kids were bored and started running wild, and that was all documented in newspaper stories up in the Bay Area that became the basis for uh, Over the Edge. So it just seemed like these were stories that where the parents were on the periphery, that the whole point of these stories is that the parents didn't really know what was going on or didn't see the need to provide more more of a context, more activity, more anything for uh, the kids to do to lead to satisfactory lives and satisfactory growth. So I just, if I'm making a picture about kids, I'll advocate for the kids. I think the parents of, you know, in these kinds of stories uh, tend to be on the periphery. Obviously, if you're doing a story about a kid who's uh, a grade-A student, uh, you know, working toward a scholarship or a chess championship or anything else, it's more likely that there's an adult behind that kid who's uh, a role model and an inspiration and helping that kid. But these were not those kinds of stories. River's Edge, too, was inspired by an actual murder of Marcy Renee Conrad and the events that followed. And like you said, Over the Edge was, too, inspired by actual events. When you make a movie like this, do you feel any obligation to the people involved in the actual stories that these movies inspired? Well, yes. I felt an obligation to try to uh, get to the heart of it, even if it was a fictionalized version of those events, you know, and tell it in a re respectful way that'll uh, reveal some truths about the situation. In Over the Edge, you know, which was about, based on the lives of the kids in this bedroom suburb, we didn't, you know, there were no rights issues. We didn't have a uh, responsibility to them as such, but we wanted to tell an honest story. In the case of River's Edge, Neil Jimenez, the writer of the original screenplay, is such a wonderful script. This is, really wouldn't be happening if Neil Jimenez, because it all starts with the script, of course, in this business. That was based on the murder uh, that took place outside of San Jose. Similar, I mean, it was the same premise. It was even worse in real life. A guy strangled his girlfriend and brought his friends out to see the body for a matter of a, of a week or more before uh, before the body was uh, was discovered. And, you know, and that guy is in jail and was in jail at the time that we made the picture. So there had been a, a, a couple of contemporary accounts of it that Neil had probably read before he wrote the screenplay. There was a Rolling Stone article 
There was a fair amount of coverage uh, by the Associated Press. And Neil was in UCLA when he wrote the script and filtered what he, the, the facts of the case that he liked, that he wanted to use, with his own experience going to high school in Sacramento with, as he described, uh, a bunch of deadheads, you know, and wrote this fictionalized version of the Jacques Broussard case. You know, I don't know what responsibility he felt. As I said, you know, we all felt the responsibility just to tell uh, an honest story that wouldn't trivialize the events or the characters. And I, I think because I, as I said, because I like to advocate for characters and try to find the part of them and, you know, and create a justification and a purpose for them, even if in the case of some of the characters of River's Edge it's skewed and a little mad, you know, that... Uh, prevents one from being condescending or judgmental. It's, you know, perhaps the lack of judgment in these pictures that is the ultimate kind of respect that I can show the characters, even if they're not engaged in uh, the greatest uh, pursuits. Talking about Neil Jimenez, who wrote The uh, River's Edge, uh, he went on to write and direct a uh, very good movie called The Water Dance and yeah. co-wrote For the Boys, but he hasn't written a movie in quite a while. Do you know what happened to him? I don't know what happened to him. Um, Neil, of course, had a bad accident before River's Edge and is a quadriplegic, and I don't know the state of his health uh, or his work. Basically, uh, I've asked myself the same question that you just asked me Um a number of times, and, and uh, um, I hope that he's uh, he's okay and working hard. I've always dreamed it would be nice to work with him again, but we've never really gotten together on a project. Mitch and Sarah, Mitch Sanford and Sarah Pillsbury, the uh, producers of the film, are probably still in touch with Neil, but I haven't talked to him for a number of years. As I stated earlier, River's Edge came out in 86. And 87, actually. Oh, we 87. shot it in 86. Okay. And uh, what was movies, uh, movie making like in the 1980s from, from your perspective? <laughs> I don't think it was much different, except you could probably stretch a dollar a little further. The film, we had tried to make it for as close to a million dollars as we could. It wound up costing, I think, about $1.7 million. We had close to a 30-day shooting schedule on that uh, slim money, you would have a hard time mounting a, uh, an 18-day TV movie on that, uh, that budget now. So I don't think there's anything different about the, the, the process. Some projects take on their own magic and attract their own kind of luck. I always say uh, God watches over independent filmmakers, or at least I say it when I, when I say it when it feels like God is watching over independent filmmakers. You know, I just think it was cheaper then, and uh, and you didn't have quite the same constraints. It wasn't so dependent on uh, cast names to get even a uh, medium-sized budget. You know, like everything else, there was more of a independent film market. Not that it wasn't competitive or difficult to uh, to crack, but uh, it didn't have the same constraints on it that the that the business has now, where it's really difficult for 
anything to cut through except a kind of lowest common denominator super studio picture that's you know mass market tuned to the nth degree your father was Ian McKellen Hunter McClellan McKellen okay thank you and he was a blacklisted during the red scare of the 1950s and yeah how did this affect you well this affected me greatly um basically I'm a red diaper baby uh child of the blacklist my parents uh, were left-wingers who were blacklisted um, in the both the early and the later stages of the House Un-American Activities uh, uh, investigation into communism in Hollywood and uh, practically speaking we we moved to Mexico City in the very early 50s when I was just three or four years old largely to uh, partly to avoid a subpoena uh, because nobody wanted to testify if they didn't have to but also because he and a bunch of the other blacklisted writers Dalton Trumbo, Ring Lardner Jr., Hugo Butler, Albert Maltz uh, all moved to Mexico initially thinking perhaps it was close enough to Hollywood to be able to work out of town without persecution and still go back and forth a little bit as needed to sell their scripts, uh, albeit under assumed names for a long time. Mexico worked for Trumbo. Anything worked for Trumbo because he had such enormous drive and talent and energy. Also worked for Hugo Butler, who stayed in Mexico for a long time and wound up working with Luis Bunuel on the Robinson Crusoe uh, movie and a, and, uh, a number of other non-Bunuel. Uh, well, he, he wrote the young one also, and some and some other pictures. And then after that, we uh, we went to New York City in a beat-up old Ford. We drove cross-country with no money at all to New York City. And during that drive, somewhere in the middle of Texas. I am told that my parents turned on the car radio and heard that my father had been named again by the director, Robert Rawson, who had testified before the House on American Activity and named a bunch of names of people that he uh, accused of having, you know, affiliation with the Communist Party. Well, they all had been uh, members of the Communist Party. They'd all joined at one point or another. Almost all of them had left by the end of World War II out of disillusionment with Stalin and none of them were anything but patriots anyway, because the reason they joined the party was to support anti-Franco forces in Spain and uh, also to support the uh, the labor movement. So growing up on the blacklist, largely in New York, was very difficult for uh, the, the writers and the other blacklisted people involved, because it was very difficult for them to make a living. They couldn't make a living under their own name. When they were hired under pseudonyms, they were paid cut-rate prices. But, you know, they struggled through. And for me, it was kind of wonderful because I was so proud of them. I knew about the blacklist at a very early age. I knew that my parents and the, our family friends, the Lardners and the, and the Trumbos and the, uh, Zero Mostel and other people in the New York contingent, had taken a stand against the House Un-American Activities Committee, had refused to name their colleagues or be a, become a stool pigeon, 
and uh, and had taken a uh, a stand on uh, on principle, and were paying the price for it. So I idolized these people and felt that I was very much being brought up on the right side of history. And so for them it was tough. I know for the Trumbo kids it was tough because Chris and Nicola Trumbo anyway were a little older than I was. They were heckled and had to was you know subject to to some uh, some bullying and persecution from uh, their peers at school. For me I just grew up in a cultural environment that was very exciting to me with a group of people who were very loyal to each other and very loyal to principle and I loved it. So it meant a lot to me. Did you see the movie Trumbo? And yeah. How did you feel about Alan Tudyk's uh, portrayal of your father? Well, I thought it was fine. I enjoyed Trumbo. I thought it was uh, entertaining. It's a little bit of a one-sided portrait, of course, but any any film biography kind of has to be. And I thought it was very entertaining, you know, and certainly got a version of the story out to an audience that didn't know anything about it. You know, I I think that my father was portrayed as an actual named character, a character named Ian Hunter in that picture, really just because they wanted to tell a version of the Roman holiday story, since my father was Trumbo's front for uh, the Roman holiday screenplay. He worked on the screenplay and ultimately shares a legitimately, I think, a credit with Trumbo on the picture. But uh, I think that's why Ian is named as Ian in the picture because nobody else is. There's no characters for Ring or Hugo or Mike Wilson or Paul Jericho or any of the other uh, people in, in that group. So I have to think that Ian became the kind of designated sidekick in the Trumbo movie because uh, of the Roman holiday story. And I didn't recognize hardly anything of my father in terms of his actual uh, character, you know, what he was, how he spoke, what he was like in the characterization, but I, did, I had nothing against it. I, I enjoyed seeing him there as the designated sidekick. The producers contacted me at one point, and they were a little worried that I wouldn't like what is a made-up uh, scene between Trumbo and my father at a kitchen table arguing over who's going to hang on to the Oscar that Trumbo one for the original story of Roman Holiday, but which was awarded in my father's name and given to my father. And uh, they're arguing over whose house they should keep it. You know, it's kind of a you take it, no, you take it kind of scene. And the producers were made this one up and uh, admittedly and were worried that I wouldn't like it. And in fact, I enjoyed the scene a lot because I thought that it was one of the few scenes in that picture that captured the uh, the playfulness and the camaraderie between those guys. It actually felt more right to me than some of the more uh, you know earnest uh, scenes in the in the picture. Because those guys they they were a lot of fun. Those guys very funny and uh, and they loved each other and they backed each other up. And that was the kind of banter that I remember growing up. You know that kind of hell. I don't want it. You take it. Kind of uh, kind of stuff that was in that scene. You directed uh, a movie called The Far Side of Jericho, which was co-written by James Crumley. Uh huh. 
I read, and if I'm right, you wanted to do Mr. Crumley's novel, Dancing Bear. And if that's true, what happened, and what was Mr. Crumley like to work with? Well, Jim was just beloved to me. I'm, day doesn't go by where I don't think about him and miss him. I convinced Warner Brothers to buy the rights to Dancing Bear years ago. You know, I guess it would have been in the early 90s then announced that I was going to write the screenplay with Jim, who I had never met. So Jim and I got together, hit it off, and we became friends writing the uh, first version of the screenplay of Dancing Bear. But Dancing Bear is a tough book to adapt, just in terms of its screen potential. It has a wonderful first half, when the villains are revealed and the thing pays off, Jim never was much one for for plot. We never could get a version of Dancing Bear that we could pay off in the third act in a satisfactory way, and the film was never made. Then the book was re-optioned by Robert Town, and he didn't have any more luck with it than Jim and I did, though Jim worked with him on another screenplay years later, and uh, and I think there are versions of uh, that version available also. Jim was a larger-than-life, funny, lusty guy. He, a Texan who had settled in Montana, a guy who had been in the Army. He was one of these guys that just seems to know everything about everything. There wasn't anything that would come up in a screenplay that he somehow didn't have some kind of authoritative knowledge of or inside track on or or smart uh, take on. And he wrote great dialogue uh, of that Western noir type, just great dialogue. He and I worked on a number of pictures, uh, a number of screenplays together. I loved writing with Jim. You know, he credited me with showing him how to write a screenplay, or at least a screenplay uh, format. And I would bring him in when I was still working more in features on anything that I could. And we wrote a number of, of scripts together, none of which got made, and probably all because we never quite licked the plot of the structure of a of some of this stuff, though all of them, I think, have memorable sequences and really memorable uh, passages of Jim Crumley uh, writing. And I, I just adored him. I used to go to Missoula, you know, to work with him as much as I could, and we would just hole up and uh, and write and write. When River's Edge uh, played the Telluride Festival, Jim and I were working, I guess, on Dancing Bear, well, I guess that I guess if Jim and I were working on Dancing Bear, that means I must have uh, I must have uh, sold Dancing Bear to Warner Brothers in '87 or close to it. We must have been working with it even that early because uh, he drove me from Missoula to Telluride. It was a memorable night. We never didn't stop like about 16 hours of straight driving or something. Anyway, he was a great friend, and uh, I can't tell you how much I miss him. 
the next question, in, in watching interviews with you, you've stated I'm all for anarchy and I'm an old anarchist. And my question, you've directed a lot of episodic television shows, Mad Men, Hannibal, Scream, or just a few. And when you're given a 50-page script and shoot it in seven or eight days, does the anarchist come out in you and say, well, let's see if I can do this different and if you could give an example of that? No, not really in those terms. Um, you know, I do mostly television now. I still am film movie oriented. I still feel that I have a uh, my own somewhat uh, distinctive style. But one tailors oneself to the assignment. Obviously, when I'm directing a TV show, I'm not in charge in the way that I am when I'm doing a feature film that I've developed myself. You know, you're working for the producers, you're working for the writer-producers, basically. So what I like about it, I do, you know, I'm a freelancer, and I, I go from show to show, and I've never uh, stayed too long on a show. I've done multiple episodes of a number of shows, Mad Men certainly uh, among them, but... What I like about it is going to someplace new, meeting a new bunch of people, seeing what they think of as the style, figuring out what they want. You know, you have to uh, not make the thing look uh, look uh, completely different or look like it's another uh, show. And then I figure out, you know, once I sort of assess the situation, then I figure out where I can bring my own approach to it and my own style to it and execute it in a distinctive way. So, no, there's nothing anarchic about uh, directing television, but the process that I have for myself, um, even when it's really just a kind of a craft exercise on material that is, uh, you know, debatably uh, not, so, not so great, TV is always the luck of the draw. You know, you go from show to show, in my case, and you never know what you're going to be given. Is it going to be a good script, a bad script? Does the show have a strong identity? Does it not know what it is? The whole process is fascinating to me because I just feel like, you know, multiple times a year I go into some different world with people that I largely haven't met before and uh, just plunge into uh, to working with them. So it's a kind of process that I like to think is somewhat like the process of a B-picture filmmaker, you know, churning out uh, a number of low-budget films uh, a year, you know, under a system that hadn't been ruined by the advent of television and other uh, other media. At least it keeps me working. I love the uh, to direct, so uh, I get to say action a lot, even if it's not on material uh, as good as River's Edge. So... You know, I just plunge into it, and that's the part that I uh, like about it. And sure, I can do scenes in a distinctive way, and it's usually uh, appreciated, but it's a, it's a balancing act in TV, and it very often boils down to a kind of elegance under pressure because uh, in a television episode, you know, you're in a movie you could shoot uh, one, two, three pages a day, and you would have a good day. On a TV show, you're shooting six, seven, eight pages a day to make a seven- or eight-day shooting schedule on a 40- to 50-page script. And so uh, 
there's there's always a part of it that boils down to can you do it stylistically well and still keep it down to the fewest number of uh, shots and setups. It's a kind of a distillation process to do it well but make the schedule. I want to talk about one. And that's a good answer on okay. what television directing is like. Right. And well, I want to talk about one episode you directed for Twin Peaks called Arbitrary Law. And this is the episode where Leland Palmer dies and confesses the murder of Laura yeah. Palmer. And the Sprinker sister goes off and it's like it's raining in the cell. It's just yeah. such a great moment. Could you discuss filming that scene? Oh, gosh, it was late at night. Twin Peaks was so wonderful um, at that point. We all knew that it was special. There was great suspense as to whether or not ABC would keep it going, and ultimately they canceled it pretty quickly. But uh, David and Mark Frost uh, created an environment where once they had given you this script with all this unusual uh material, this kind of skewed uh, teenage dark uh, murder come soap opera, they really let you go. And so I think I and all the most of the other core directors on Twin Peaks remember it as a, a show where we had unusual creative freedom for a, a television show. We were really encouraged to, uh, to make it cinematic and to put our own... Uh, touches on it. That was such a wonderful uh, episode. And I always thought David would bring me into that show either to set up an episode when he was going to do the next episode or to clean up after he had done an episode and sort of pull the thing back to earth story-wise because I'm, I'm pretty good at getting a clear narrative uh, on the screen. And so in one case, you know, David's episode had just gone so far out sort of needed uh, somebody to come in and uh, get the plot rolling again. In the other case of the one you were talking about, he was doing the final episode after the one where Leland confesses under the sprinkler system. And, uh, you know, so it was a kind of a setup. And I always liked, you know, doing that. My What I took to be my small role on that show, you know, it was all on the stage. We... Uh, when you do a rain scene or a scene like that on a stage, I, you know, I think that uh, we had trenches around the set. It was plastic liners around the set. It was a drainage system. It was all fairly uh, elaborate. And I pretty much remember that uh, we shot it very late at night. In those days, uh, they didn't stand in your way if things went went a bit long and you needed to get some overtime. Now, if you shoot an hour of overtime on a TV show. You'll never work in Hollywood again. But, uh, and, to, you know, to do that with Ray, and well, it, was, it, was a, it was a great scene. I saw it recently because uh, USC did a Twin Peaks retrospective, and they screened it on a big scene. I thought the episode held up pretty well. Oh, yeah, I would say I watched it recently, too, and I have to agree. And the final question is, uh, what are you working on now? What television show are you working on now? You know, I've been f freelancing as usual. Uh, I did a lot of work last season. It's been a little slower this year, which in a way has been a blessing. It's always the luck of the draw with me. I mean, you know, sometimes you get on something and it turns out to be Mad Men. Other times you get on something and it's not, uh, you know, nearly as... Uh, 
fulfilling and it becomes more of a craft exercise. I did the last two shows of season one of Underground, a cable show about slaves uh, escaping a plantation. It was more melodramatic than I expected it to be, but it was still pretty interesting uh, material with a good cast. I helped launch the first season of Scream, which was something of a thankless job, but uh, I thought we did some good, uh, some good stylish suspense murder sequences. I worked on a couple of shows that have been canceled, uh, Hand of God, a cable show that was on uh, Amazon, Blood and Oil, a soap opera that never worked on uh, ABC, and sort of enjoyed uh, both of them just because the casts were good and the the uh, genre was, uh, you know, was always fun for me. And uh, I did the season two finale of Bosch on Amazon, which was a lot of fun because Michael Connelly knew Crumley, and, uh, you know, that's my genre. And uh, Connelly was on the set, had co-written the, the script, and that was exciting. I'm just finishing up an episode of Frequency, the Warner Brothers show uh, based on the Dennis Quaid movie, though it's it's been quite uh, changed from the original premise. All of it's fun. I would like to thank Tim Hunter for agreeing to do the interview. Remember, come to the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street to see River's Edge. The movie will be showing Saturday, January 14th, 2017 at 2 p.m. And today's music is from the River's Edge by Jorgen Nieper. <laughs>